Okay. So last time, previously, we were in uh, John 1, verses 2 through 13. We talked about, again, how the Word created all things, how the Word was life and the light of men. We talked about that the world didn't recognize the light, his own people. Israel didn't recognize him as the light of the world, as their Messiah. And, of course, they rejected him. We talked about that. And we also talked about that But those who did receive him, who believed on his name, that God gave the power, the authority, the right to become children of God. And we talked about that. And so this week we're going to be going through uh, John 1, verses 14 through 18. So if you want to open up your Bibles to that. John 1, 14 through 18. We'll be doing a little bit of uh, comparing... Uh, translations, because I think it's uh, a little important uh, that we do that, especially what we're talking about today, and we'll be talking about um, the Word being made flesh, and uh, discussing that. So, John 1, verse 14, would somebody be so kind as to read that? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold His glory, the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of the grace and truth. Amen. What version do you have, brother? Hmm? What version are you reading from? Uh, King James. Cool. Great. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Great. So, and the Word became flesh. What a, what a powerful little statement with immense implications, all just in a very short, tiny little phrase. Right? The Word... The Word who uh, dwelt with God from eternity, who created all things, right? Who is the light of the world, right? He's the one who reveals God to the world. The great and glorious Son of God put on humanity. You know, I think maybe sometimes as Christians, maybe being a, a Christian for a while, we get... A little too used to that idea, right? A little bit too—it's a little bit too uh, easy to flow right off the lips, right? We kind of get—we kind of get used to it. But just think about how eternal, unlimited God, eternal, unchanging, holy, holy, holy. God became like one of us. Right? He came down, as it's said, for us and for our salvation. Actually, we'll be reading that in a little bit. What an amazing, remarkable statement. A remarkable event. A miracle. That that God, who is not like us, put on flesh and became like us. In every respect, as it says. Except for, of course, as the Word says, sin. The eternal divine Logos put on human flesh and dwelt with His people and sinful humanity. The God who is separated from sin put on His put on humanity to come and save us. Right? 
This doctrine, of course, in this doctrine, of course, is called. You've probably heard this many times, but the incarnation. Right? He puts on flesh. And what else does it say? And what else does it say here? He became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, a lot of commentators, uh, some commentators will talk about, I know John MacArthur talks about this, others have that the word dwelt here uh, implies that Jesus pitched his tent among us, right? He tabernacled among us. And what would be the significance of, of that statement? that he tabernacled. Living alongside of us. Living alongside of us. What other thoughts does it conjure up if you were to say that he pitched his tent, so to speak, or tabernacled? Well, it's a sojourner. Someone who's there temporarily. Yeah, sojourner. He's there temporarily. Sure. Yeah, it's not his permanent home. Great. Something else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It harkens back to the tabernacle, doesn't it? Right? Where uh, Israel um, made a, a glorious, movable, portable temple. Right? The tabernacle. Right? In which God, in His manifesting Himself in the Shekinah glory, came and dwelt in that tent. Right? And when that glory would lift up from the tent... What would they do? Move. They move. Exactly. Yep. Time to go. Let's go. Right? And the Shekinah glory would lead them. And then when it would stop, they stop. Right? So yeah, it could be, John could be using a word here to get you to hearken back to that. Right? That that God Himself has tabernacled with His people yet again in the Son. What else does this verse say? What's the next thing? He dwelt among us and what? We've seen his glory. And we have seen his glory. Right? The eternal divine word displays his glory in human flesh. Right? God, who, of course, let Moses see his quote unquote back parts, right? As he hid him in the cleft of the rock, right? That glory, right? God reveals his glory. In his son. And John is saying that we have seen it. Right? We have we have seen it. I mean, he he's going to spend his gospel telling us how he's seen the glory of Christ. That's what he's be spending his gospel doing. And we're also seated too when we also talk about the synoptic gospels as well, right? The others as we go through the harmony of, of the life of Christ, right? And those with, it, with eyes to see saw it. Those who God gave eyes to see recognized it, right? Now this glory, it's not like any other sort of glory, right? It's not the glory of creation, like if you were to look at a, a beautiful flower in the field or the glory of a noble king, or the glory of like a celestial body like the sun and the moon or a star in the sky, right? No, this glory is beyond all of that. Right? The glory of the incomparable God in human flesh. 
a glory from now. And now we get to the part where we're going to go a little bit more into the text itself, right? The glory as of the only Son from the Father, at least that's how the ESV has it. Then you'll see like the Christian uh, Standard Bible. It says, the one and only Son from the Father, and then NIVs like that. But notice what the New American Standard has. And our brother's KJV. What word is used there instead of one and only? Begotten. Begotten. Let me read to you a definition from uh, the Greek and English lexicon of the New Testament. Let me just read to you part of this entry for this word. Brother, would you mind flipping to the next slide for a moment, if you would? Monogenes. Let me just read to you an entry of this. Pertaining to what is unique in the sense of being the one and only of the same kind or class. And then skipping then skipping down. And he uses a basis for this Hebrews 11.17. And uh, let's just go there for a second if you don't mind. Hold your place. Let's go to Hebrews 11.17. Because the depth... The, the authors here of Lo and Nita, they, they reference it, so let's go there, because they want to make a point. I, and I want to make a point about how sometimes dictionaries define words. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received... The promises was in fact was in the fact in the act, excuse me, of offering up his only son. So those who are in the uh, putting in this entry in the dictionary here in the lexicon are basically saying that this word really doesn't mean begotten. The only begotten, right? Because that would mean that you know begotten means what? We use this word begotten. I guess it would be good to define it. What does begotten mean? Sorry about your father, right? Read some of the uh, translations of the Bible. You go through the genealogies, right? You'll see it, right? So-and-so begot so-and-so. So-and-so begot so-and-so. All of you were begotten, otherwise you wouldn't be here, right? Some of you were in the same room with somebody who begot you. Brought forth, sort yes, brought forth, right? Born, right? From... Descend from your father. Dictionaries, and sometimes people are a little too smart for their own good. Uh, there's kind of been a wave in the New Testament in scholarship to try to steer people away from this word of not meaning begotten, but being unique. And they'll use texts like Hebrews 11.17 to make their point. Because what do we know about Isaac? Yeah, two sons. Well, Isaac did. Oh, yeah. yeah, Isaac did. That's right. Abraham. Yeah, what about Isaac in relation to Abraham? Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. no. Ishmael. Right? We had Ishmael. And then as those who in the lexicon point out, talks about he has later sons by another wife, Keturah. Right? So this word can't possibly mean that Isaac was born. Like the only one born. It must mean that he's unique because he's the son of the promise. Eh, I don't think so. The early church 
fathers, and they're not perfect, they're not inerrant, but I would argue a lot of times they're a lot smarter than us, interpreted this word to mean only or mean begotten, to be born. Uh, Scholar Charles Lee Irons, he talks about, he's done work on this, and he basically says that scholars argue that this word doesn't come from monos, you can kind of see the mono, right, meaning only, right, and genao, which is beget, they're saying it doesn't mean that, but instead it means only, and then genos, meaning kind. But he makes the argument, and I would agree, that this word actually does come from being born or being begotten. And this doctrine that we're going to talk about here in a second doesn't rest solely on this word, but it's important because if you take it away, you do undermine the biblical case for a doctrine that we call eternal generation. Anybody ever heard of this term? Okay, not too many. That's all right. You know, that's that's okay. Here is a definition of, and I did a lot of reading. I like the uh, the definition that's in John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's book called Biblical Doctrine. They're the editors of the book. Here's the definition that they give. It's the eternal, necessary, and self-differentiating act of God the Father, by which He generates the personal subsistence, basically a person, of the Son, and thereby communicates to the Son the entire divine essence. So, now we're getting into stuff that is way over our head. I'll just admit it right off the bat. Anytime you talk about Trinity, every time you open your mouth, you're in danger of uttering a heresy. It's just kind of the way it works. Because, of course, He is above our understanding. Right? But he does give us knowledge and he does expect us to work it through. And to at least understand what we know to be actually accurate. Right? Even though we might not fully understand it. So let's just talk about the Trinity for a second. Who can define the Trinity? There is one God. Anybody else? Just shout it out because I got my back turned to you. Okay, good, good. Yeah, so these are, yeah, that's good. So we want to stay to the fact that our foundational understanding is that God is one. We are not tritheists, we're not polytheists. We don't worship more than one God. Amen? Amen. Right? Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. God drilled home the point to Israel that there was only one God. <coughs> and only one they were worshipped. However, as we look into Scripture, we see, though, that is God just one person? No. No. He's not. And how do we know that? Let's give some scriptures, just real quick, off the top of your head. 
How do we know that God is more than one person? Right. Yeah, the divine we, right? Let us, great. Another. Yeah. That's great. Another one. How about statements that would directly call somebody God? How about John 1 1? We just read it a few weeks ago, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God, and the Word was God. Right there, you've got a differentiation, right there. Another verse that you can think of. Alright. I am the way. The truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Okay, good. How about Thomas? When he saw the risen Christ, what did he say? My Lord and my God. How about X5? When Ananias is caught, you know, trying to say that he's given all the proceeds of his sale, right? And what does Peter say to him? You have not, he said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to man, but to God. Right? So, there are statements in Scripture that let us know that God is one and yet He is more than one person. And we have to hold these things. And they're not a contradiction, right? Because a contradiction would be saying something is true and false like in the same sense, right? Like, like we can't say God is one in essence but three in essence. That's a contradiction. Just flat out. But... And it would be a contradiction to say God is one in person and God is three in person. Also a contradiction. But these one in, uh, one in essence and three in person may be beyond our understanding, but not a contradiction. So the doctrine of eternal generation getting back to this. So this is the fact that God the Father, okay, in eternity, right? So this is the thing. We, our relationships, right, are shadows, right, or reflect what is ultimately true of God, right? They're not the same thing. They're not equivalent, right? As, as men, right, we beget our children, right? But we beget them at a point in time. You might remember, some of you might take you a little bit longer to remember back when you, earlier, but you remember, you remember a point in your life that your children were not living, you remember that, don't you? Yeah? Right? At some point in time, you begot them. But if we were to say that Jesus was begotten at a certain point in time, what would that say? Yeah, He didn't exist at one point. That He was, essentially, you could even argue that He's created. And can we have that? No. So, first of all, eternal generation is eternal. Seems pretty straightforward, right? But it's true. It's eternal. This is not at a particular point in time. It never had a beginning. Right? And the next is that it is necessary. Meaning it by definition, it must happen. In order to be a father, you have to have what? A child, right? 
That's not too too you know hard to understand, right? We must have a child, right? If you are a son, you must have a father. So if he's called the son, then it's necessary that he has a father. And if God is a father, and he is, he must by necessity have a child. Right? So eternal generation is, is necessary, right? If, if the first person of the triune God is by his very nature a father, and he is, then he must beget. He begets the son. What this doctrine does is that it... It differentiates between the Father and the Son. Right? It helps us to distinguish Christ or Jesus from the Father. They're not, we don't believe that God the Father puts on different masks, right? Or different roles. Like He's the Father at one point, then He turns His role and comes over to the Son, then He changes His role and He's the Spirit. No. Right? This doctrine teaches us, and what this doctrine does is basically just trying to put together what we see in the Scripture. This is really all it's doing. Trying to help us get a little bit of a, a grasp on it. That the Son eternally is begotten right by the Father. Right, He's another person. He's not His Father, but He shares the nature of His Father. By virtue of His personhood being generated by the Father, his, div- his entire divine essence or nature is His. He doesn't receive Godhood from the Father, but He receives His personhood. And again, this is really hard to understand. It's, it's a little bit above our heads because it's eternal. And we think in points of time all the time, don't we? We're kind of time-locked creatures. But God isn't. There was never a time where Jesus didn't exist. Never. He's eternally always begotten of the Father. Yes, brother? A little bit easier to understand this doctrine when you Absolutely. And then he, began, he was begotten at a point in time and took on flesh and given the name Jesus. Yes. Yeah, Jesus is his name that he was given for when he was incarnated. Yes, he wasn't known as, as was Jesus. Jesus but, right. Yeah, I should be clear on that. Yeah, you're right. He wasn't Jesus in eternity past. So there was a change in the second person of the Godhead, it's his, his essence. There was a change. He, he's, he's flesh. Now, he wasn't flesh prior to that point in time. I would say that there he puts on he puts on flesh. There is an essential where he adds it to himself. Right? But his essential godness doesn't change. Right? Yeah. His essential godness doesn't change. That remains undiluted, undefiled. Right? And again, this is um, 
MacArthur and Mayhew's book talks about, and I, I didn't write down the quote from Spurgeon, he said that, uh, he talks about the doctrine of eternal generation that it really doesn't shed much, paraphrasing, it really doesn't shed much light, it just kind of covers our ignorance. You know? And Spurgeon had a way with, with words, I think. It's just a, a feeble way for us to try to attempt to explain how Christ comes from the Father. Yeah, brother. I want to ask, John, are, are you suggesting that the becoming that is uh, in this word refers to as becoming human? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think it has a sense of that, yes. See, I, I would... Go ahead, go ahead. So, by him being only begotten son, you you believe that refers to his becoming man? Well, I think, well, yeah, part of it. But not in total. I think that there is a differentiating, like I said, within the... In the, in the difference in the second person of the God that prior to his incarnation he, he wasn't flesh. Right. But he was the Son. He was. Yeah, he's eternally the Son. Now I would say I would say what this verse is getting at is not his begottenness here is not talking about him putting on flesh. I would say this is pointing back to in eternity him being begotten. That's what I would that's what I would argue with this. That's not him putting on flesh. It's talking about his eternality, right? So we can look at a few other verses. I think that would teach this. Let's go to John five twenty six. Someone read John five twenty six. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Okay. So we see the Father having life, and that He has granted the Son to have life in himself as well. Okay, let's go to, uh, and then I think John, 1 John 5.18 hints at this too. Let's go to 1 John 5.18. And someone read that for us. 1 John 5.18? Yes, please. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, who's the one born of God here? The one who's born of God doesn't sin. That's talking about believers. But there's another born of God here. Who's this? That's Christ. That is Christ. I mean, the doctrine is ultimately a mystery, but it does help. And I'll quote again from MacArthur and Mayhew's book. Expressions like eternal generation, only begotten son, and others, uh, and I'll skip that part, pretending to basically, the filiation, it's just another word for son of Christ, must all be understood as underscoring the absolute oneness of essence between father and son. In other words, such expression, it aren't, such expressions aren't intended to invoke the idea of procreation. They're meant to convey the truth about the essential oneness shared by the members of the Trinity. So the idea here is, is that it's expressing the oneness. And we're not talking about all three persons being the same person. Just, yeah, yeah. But just by their very nature, they're God, right? The Father is 
the Father begets, He's not begotten, the Son is begotten. And then the Spirit, right, He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Let's, uh, brother, if we could flip to the next slide, if we could. This is a portion of the Nicene Creed, and you'll see the reference there where I got that from, a book called Documents of the Christian Church, and we read that. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Right? That's talking about His, his Godness. Through whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from the heavens and was made flesh of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. Right? So you see there that how the church fathers thought about it, right, was that Jesus, they interpreted that as begotten, right? God begot him before all ages, not in time, but it's eternal. And that he is of one substance, he's equally God. And then notice how it differentiates, right, his incarnation. How does it express that here? That he was what? Made flesh, right? And what was the avenue that God did to do that? The Spirit, and of course, Mary. Now that's a lot, that may have not shed more light, just maybe brought more confusion, I certainly hope not. Um, any questions on any of that? So back to the Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, that's the God there, which we came to James and Adam how would that work? I, there are times where I think there are times where you could, just depending on the context, take it to be like unique, right? Because yeah, Isaac is unique, right? He is. A, he yeah, that's true that he's not the only physical son of Abraham. That's absolutely true. But he is the only son of physical son of Abraham according to the promise, right? Does that help? Yeah. Okay. I believe he uses that same um, term in, in Genesis 2. God tells him to take your, your son, your only son, Isaac. Oh, in Genesis 22? Yeah, I believe he uses that term. Uh, yeah, there's that. Yeah, the translation talks about your only son, right? And, and kill him. I didn't look that up, so I don't know. I But that very well may be true. Yeah, Genesis 22, as far as the underlying. Yeah, brother. So, so the rub comes from the fact that God, in this case, does not mean created. No. So, no. then that's a bit of a train wreck in my head because <laughs> uh, then what you're saying is that there's another uh, dimension that you've gotten that transcends the dimension. The definition you come up with. Yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because begotten, we're thinking physical and in time. That's all we know. That's all we know, right? But God, I can't even get my words out. You know, it, we can't, <laughs> He's beyond us, right? Right? Our begottenness, right, it is physical. Timely, it's limited, 
but we ultimately just you know shadow right or reflect. We're analogous. We're an analogy of of God. No, I don't believe so. No, it's talking about it. Differ. It it underscores the oneness that Jesus has with the Father, right? Because He says in John ten thirty, "I and the Father are one." But yet, He's not the Father either. He's not the same person. So how do we understand that? This helps us a little bit. Not much, yeah. Not much, but a little. What makes more sense? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someday. Maybe, but we're still limited. Yeah, brother. Uh, something that helps me, I've I talked to Jehovah's Witnesses uh, before, and, and they, they've tried to say, you know, well, um, if you look at a, 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 a human son and, and father, uh, which is greater? And and they, they would suggest, you know, that the father is greater. But, you know, when we think of just on our human level, that's not always true. There comes a point where the son is is uh, maybe greater strength and capacity than the Father, you know, when, when you think of it on, on just a human level. But when we look at the way the Scripture uses the, the terms uh, like Son of God and Son of Man, Son of Son of Man is often used, Jesus uses that term of Himself most, most often. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that He's less than man or, or that He's less than His Father. In fact, He was greater than, than His human Father. Um, but that, that that speaks of, of his nature. He he is of the nature of man. He's truly man, you know. And and Son of God also uh, speaks of, of his nature mm-hmm. uh, that he he is uh, he is truly God. Uh, and and I think that that helps here as well because you know the beginning uh, is speaking of, of his nature that he is of the same nature uh, with the Father. And, and like you said, you know you can't have a father. A man can't be a father unless he has a child. You know, right. the, same, the same is true. You know, the father and the son. But but all of that I think is to to speak to us on on our human level to help us understand that there's a relationship there. Um, you know that that there's there's love, there's communion, fellowship. Um, there's there's giving and receiving, uh, both from the father to the son and from the son to the father. Uh, so there's a real relationship there. I think uh, John 5:18 it shows that like the Jews had an understanding that if he was if God was Christ's Father then he was equal. It says this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Right, right. Son, in that context, doesn't mean. You know, like, they understood it. The Jews understood that when he's calling himself God's son, that he was equal. That's how they took it. And they were right to take it that way. They just didn't bother asking themselves if it was true. But suffice to say that the son is equal with the father. He's of the same essence, right? Jesus is God. That's the point. Right? Jesus is God. And going on, let's go back a couple slides to the end of verse 14, brother, if we could. If we could go back. What is Jesus full of? Glory and what else? Spirit. 
Grace and truth. Amen and amen. Right? Jesus is completely filled with God's grace. And it's truth. And he'll jump back to that, I think, in verse 16. But we'll move on to verse 15. I'm going to have you flip forward here, brother, if you could. Uh, verse 15. So John takes a John the Apostle takes a brief aside. Then we've got John uh, 1.15. Talk about the Apostle John bearing witness. Right? What's it say there? ESV. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Right? So he briefly goes back to John the Baptist and points out that Jesus saw and he recognized, right? And he bore witness to Christ in his glory. Right? And that as a result, Jesus, although he came after John, Right? You see the word there? He who comes after me. Now this is a cultural thing that is that is a uh, that we need to understand that in that mindset, if you came after somebody, that you ranked below them. If Jesus comes after John, who has more honor? John. John. But John distinguishes it though, doesn't he? He says, Yeah, Jesus came after me, but what? But he's before me. Right? But he is before me. Right? He comes before me. So he points out that because of Jesus, he came before him. John has this idea, I think, that Jesus is divine, he's God, he ranks before him. Now, John's going to talk about this. This is an echo. This is a preview of John 1.30. He's going to basically say this later. But let's look at some passages where John talks about Christ. Just really quickly. Matthew 3, verse 11. Someone flip there. Read that. Matthew 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, yeah, he who's coming after me is mightier than I. And he says he's so far above him, he's not even worthy to do what? Right? He's not even worthy to carry his sandals. That's how much greater this person is than him. Right? Mark 1, verse 7. Mark 1, 7. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Here we go again. You have that same idea that he's not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And then Luke three fifteen through 16, we won't read, basically says the same thing. So again, John goes out of his way to talk again about John the Baptist and, and say that you know John the Baptist is great, but he's not Jesus. Right? He seems to be kind of focused in on early on talking about how John the Baptist clearly says that Jesus is greater than him. wonder if there was some sort of like, a, there were still people who were still kind of caught up with John the Baptist, right? Because uh, you'll notice like in the book of Acts, right, when the gospel spreading out, there's sort of this group of people who had accepted John's baptism, right, were disciples of John the Baptist, but hadn't heard about Christ. So he goes out of his way to, to talk about uh, John the Baptist. So, verse 16, and then we'll be done. 
John 1.16 For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Amen. Who's the we? Us. Right. Us meaning humanity? Believers. Believers. Amen. And what have we received? Grace upon grace. I like what Merrill Tenney says in his commentary on John. He says, When one supply of grace is exhausted, another is available. As if we could exhaust it, right? But we can't. One grace follows right upon another, upon another, upon another. And how can this Jesus in his fullness give us one grace after another? After another. Because he's God. Because he's God. Meaning that if we're united with him, brothers, you can never exhaust it. Amen. It never runs out. If you're joined to Christ, this grace is yours. Amen. This grace doesn't give us license. It gives us wings to fly. If we really think about the never-ending grace of God that covers all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, I think the argument of the Bible is, is that you won't take advantage of it Ultimately, but the argument is that you'll want to follow him. That you'll want to do what he says. That you will give your life for him. Because this grace comes one after another after another, those who really belong to him aren't going to say, well, I'll just do whatever I want. They're going to get after it. Anybody need this grace upon grace? Absolutely. Every waking moment. And we're going to see in the Gospels how Jesus just gives one grace after another, after another, after another to the sheep that have no shepherd who... All the Pharisees are doing, are they giving grace upon grace? No. Crushing law after crushing law after crushing law. Squeezing the life out of God's people. Now we we have time to talk about uh, the relationship of, of Moses and law and grace and truth with Christ because we're out of time. Any last thoughts or comments before we close?